If you've got a Bible, could you turn please to John chapter 20, 24 to 29. You won't have to guess what I'm preaching about today. It's a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? Um, John 20, 24 to 29. Uh, Happy Easter, everyone. You, You can't really imagine a more perfect Easter Sunday really like everything is is working towards like you look outside and the sky and the sun um wonderful to start the meeting with such a kind of clap of triumph um but everything is illustrating what we're going to be talking about uh, today so you can if you are find yourself at any point gazing out of the window even that will be an illustration as you'll see as we go along but I want to take a snapshot from the uh Easter su- first Easter Sunday well it's not, not on the Sunday so it'll be a bit after but from the resurrection story um, and then we'll go from there. Uh, that's the plan. So John 20, 24 to 29. One of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. <clears throat> Just a, an administrative point, which I forgot to say a minute ago. If anyone's here whose English uh, is not your first language, or you just simply prefer reading to listening, I have some extra notes here. Uh, it might be slightly awkward, but speak now or forever hold your peace. If you just stick a hand up, my, uh, my, my beautiful assistant here will furnish you with some notes, which we always say. So if anyone would like some notes, just uh, stick your hand up, and we'll go from there. Very good. Good job, Jonathan. Come on, at least in that corner. Give him something to do. Or Yeah, he's even a jog. Very nice. Okay, as Christians, we believe that Jesus physically rose again from the dead. Yeah? Yeah? I recognize not everyone in this room m- might be a Christian, and that's fine if you're not a Christian here today. If you don't believe that, you are really welcome uh, here today. But we're going to be talking about that today. And the, uh, the Gospels, the four biographical accounts of Jesus' life, make this very clear. And this is what they spell out. The Gospels tell us of an empty tomb. A, a tomb where Jesus had been laid that was clothed with a massive stone and guarded by a crack team of Roman soldiers. But that tomb, the Gospels tell us, was found on Easter Sunday morning, empty, with the stone rolled away and no body inside. That's what the Gospels tell us. And the Gospels tell us about the the followers of Jesus' reaction. They didn't jump to the conclusion that he'd risen again. They jumped to the conclusion that someone had nicked his body. And so they went around asking, look, what have you done with with the body to someone who looked like the gardener? Where is it? What's happened here? But the uh, gospel accounts tell us that pretty soon after that, Jesus physically resurrected and appeared to those followers to show them what had happened. Sometimes he appeared to one uh, follower. Sometimes he appeared to a couple of them. Sometimes to a whole crowd of them altogether. And in the uh, passage, uh, just using it as a platform to start today, really, we see this last case. Jesus appears to a whole crowd of different people. And even here, he convinces the, the, the hardened skeptic, Thomas, who's from this incident, he has the name even to today, Doubting Thomas. Um, 
But here we see Jesus appear even to Thomas and uh, convincing him actually that he physically rose again from the dead, that he was dead and then he was alive again. And I recognize that, that while for many of us, um, those would be very familiar claims, and for many of us, we would build our lives around those claims, they are incredible claims. And I mean incredible in the sense that the word actually came from almost unbelievable. How could we believe in a dead man coming back to life? And a few weeks ago, uh, we in the west side and the south side, and even the north side, let's all remember, moment to remember our north friends today. Yeah, come on. <laughs> They're having a great time this morning uh, celebrating the resurrection. But in the north as well, um, I spoke on uh, that incredible claim. Like, could, can, is it reasonable really to believe in a dead man coming back from the dead? Uh, in a dead man coming back from the dead? Yeah, that's right, coming alive again. Um, and if you weren't here for that and that's something you really want to look into more, please, the, the talk's up on the website. And also, just a very quick plug uh, now, if you, you're uh, interested in that, or you have friends who think, you know, it's the historical nature of this that is the stumbling block. We have an event coming up at the beginning of June uh, where we've got a, a, someone who really knows his onions to come and talk about this. Uh, Dr. Peter Williams uh, is an academic from Cambridge University, an expert in ancient languages and all that sort of stuff, but actually a very engaging, charismatic speaker who's going to be uh, presenting the case for, for the historical Jesus, including the historicity of the resurrection as well as his death and his life as well. So log that one in. We'll have some flyers. That'll be £10, although on the website it's more expensive because, you know, we like you guys. You know, We like to do stuff like that. Um, so we looked at whether it was reasonable to believe this, but at the end of that, um, that talk when we were at the South site, we'd opened up to questions, to Q&A. And uh, one question uh, came in that I'd like to address today because it's a slightly different question, and I've even got the text to prove it, although you can hardly see it. Um, this is the question that came in. Why is it important that Jesus rose from the dead? Couldn't he just die and go to God and still answer our prayers? Why does the resurrection matter so much to us? I want to think about that for a second. Uh, couldn't he? he could have done, couldn't he? He could have just died and you know, gone to heaven in the way that we often think of that kind of thing happening, and wouldn't have that worked? What do we, what, I don't know if it's behind the question, but what would we lose if we just didn't pay so much attention on the resurrection? Um, why is this so significant? And I'd like to talk about that today. We talked about whether it's reasonable to believe a few weeks ago in the resurrection. This time, asking why does it matter? Um, and I wanna, what I want to do is really simple. I want to give you a really quick answer to that question in a, in a sentence that hopefully you can remember. And then I would like to unpack that and explore the enormous consequences of that because it's my, uh, my con- <laughs> I'm going to be contesting today that the resurrection really does matter. It matters uh, for us as individuals, but it matters for everything, everywhere in the world, and I'll be bold about this, in the entire universe, the resurrection matters. We are going cosmic today, people. And any excuse I have to use the word cosmic without being a complete hippie, I will use. And today, as you'll see, that is an appropriate word. So why does the resurrection matter? Let's give the short answer, shall we? Um, the short answer is found in, not in one of the gospel accounts, but in the book of resurrection. Uh, in the re- book of resurrection? <laughs> The, the magic new book I found, haha! You heard it first in the book of Revelation, um, and Revelation is a <laughs> is essentially a series of visions that one of Jesus' followers called John received years after uh, the actual resurrection, and in it. Jesus says this, Revelation 21, verse 5. Very easy for us to remember today. And if this is anything, if people say, what did Johnny talk about? This is it, okay? Look, Jesus says, 
I am making all things new. Look, I am making all things new. <laughs> you got the, yeah, there we go. That's, uh, there was a picture, wasn't there? Now, that passage, Revelation 21, is not specifically talking about the resurrection, but it's the resurrection that makes it possible for that to be said. It makes it possible for Jesus to make all things new. The resurrection showed that this is what Jesus was up to all along. That Jesus' plan was to make all the broken and decaying and dead and old things into fixed and refreshed and alive and new things. That was what was going on. Not just that, though. The, the resurrection also gave us evidence that he could do it, didn't it? It wasn't just some great sales pitch. This is what I want to do. Everyone would say, yeah, that's a great idea. But he proved that he could do it. If he could bring his own body back from the dead, surely he can do that to anything, Connie. Actually, even more than that, and this is what I want to explore as we go on today, the resurrection of Jesus, in a sense, was the event that started the whole process of making things new that we see happening today but that we haven't got to the end of yet as well. Look, I am making all things new. Why is the resurrection important? Well, that's why. It's the short answer. Okay, So let's unpack it. Let's unpack it and let's expand on that and apply it, shall we? I want to do that in three ways. I think there's three things we can take from this. The first is when we apply it to our lives in the future. Jesus' resurrection means that we, each of us here, can be made new in the future. Jesus' resurrection means that we can be made new in the future. And I think here would be the most immediate application of Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus defeated death and came out the other side, well, it's not too much of a leap to say, well, he can do the same for us, Connie. It's uh, strange, uh, both this Easter and last Easter, this has been brought home to me very, very personally, I guess, because in the kind of month before each uh, Easter of 2019 and 2018, uh, one of my good friends has died. And uh, on both occasions, um, I got to see them shortly before they died, just before Easter. Um, and both my friends, strangely, died uh, of the same kind of cancer, actually, although they they, uh, they lived in different parts of the country. They, they, they knew each other, but uh, weren't friends together. But they had the same kind of cancer. And, uh, just before Easter, I went to see both of them in, in the respective years. And um, as you can imagine, I'm sure you can imagine this, and some of you would know this from experience, when you see people who are in the latter stages uh, of cancer, uh, they're not in the best state. And my friends weren't in the best state when I saw them. Neither of them had become old in one sense of the word. They were both in their mid-50s, and I know some of you think that's old here. I know it. One day you'll see, okay? (laughs) But they weren't old. But the cancer had sped up the decay of their bodies to the point where they were physically broken, to the point where they couldn't even support life anymore. And both of those people had been people who were full of life, like absolutely overflowing with life. And, uh, but they were reduced to this kind of state where their bodies could no longer support them. And that was the run-up to Easter for me, uh, both this year and last year. But just before Easter this year and last year, uh, I got to do another thing as well. I got to see my friends' funerals. And uh, they were, of course, occasions of loss. And they were occasions of sadness. And they were occasions of, of mourning. But... I think anyone who was there would have said this as well. While those were elements of 
the funeral services, both of those services were genuine celebrations. And they weren't just celebrations of lives well lived, although they were because both my friends lived very, lived very well uh, in every sense of that word, I think. Um, but it, they were celebrations of lives that would go on. And not just in our memories, but really go on. And that was very much at the core of everything that was happening. Why? Why do we take this funeral that should be the worst time? Why is there this celebration, this deep celebration for followers of Jesus? Well, obviously, it's because followers of Jesus in life, well, the Bible says that those who follow Jesus in their lives get to follow him in their deaths too. And to follow Jesus in your death means to come out the other side alive. That's what it means. That's an amazing thing. But there's something else to add to this picture uh, that I think makes this even more exciting, actually. Because Jesus' resurrection doesn't just offer us the promise of an extension to our lives. It's like your life's going on, and then there's a little blip of death down here. Oh, quick, we'll fix that. Back up again. Oh, and it just keeps on going. It's not just an elongation. No, it's something even better than an elongation. It's, it's, a, it's that we're made new. That's the whole thing. So it's different. Can you see? The extension is one thing. To be made new is a different thing altogether. Now, let's think back to the account I, we read at the beginning of Thomas. When Jesus appears to his disciples, and this is a classic example, it's obviously the same Jesus, isn't it? Well, he comes in and they go, oh, it's Jesus. They, they notice him. He's not the waiter or something like that. But he's kind of the same, but he's kind of different as well. I mean, on other occasions, he is mistaken. They think he's the gardener at one point. Two people walk along a road with Jesus without friends of his who don't even recognize him. There's something different about the risen Jesus. So uh, at one point, uh, he can eat with his disciples, and Thomas can even touch the wounds that are the continuity from his, his body pre-death to after death. So it's clearly him, but at the same point, I mean, I don't know if you spotted this. It's the kind of bit in there that's like, say what? Um, there's lots of that in there, but anyway, this one particularly. It says, the doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Well, had he become an expert lockpick in his time dead, or a cat burglar or something? No, no, there's something um, different about Jesus in his body. There's a newness. He's back, but he's new. He's recognizable, but he's different. You could touch him, and, you could, and he could eat and drink, but he could also appear in locked rooms without opening the door. It wasn't just that Jesus' life had been kind of extended and elongated after the blip of death. He had a new body. There's a newness about him. He'd been made new. And that's what the hope of resurrection is for us as well. And if you're thinking now, well, okay then, but what on earth does that look like? Well, you wouldn't be the first people to ask that question. That was asked uh, just quite soon after Jesus rose again uh, by the early Christians. And the Apostle Paul, which is very helpful for us, gives us an exact answer, and also very helpful for us, gives us a very, very simple image that can help us. So I'll just read you what he says. Okay, what does it look like for us to expect to be made new when we die? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 36 to 44 says this. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness. However we die, we'll be buried in brokenness. But they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness. 
but they'll be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. We're going to be made new. It's a bit like a seed to a flower. Now, your mind can boggle. Paul doesn't expect us to think, oh, exactly, that's what that means. But he is expecting us to have faith and hope for the future from, from that. And It's worth reflecting that surely this is what we need, isn't it? Surely this is the hope that we need. Because, I mean, certainly none of us, obviously, would want to be simply kept alive indefinitely in the state that my friends were in when I saw them for the last time. I mean, no one, when people think of eternal life, no one is thinking that. That wouldn't be a good thing. That would be an awful thing. But really, the question is, do we actually just want to keep on going like we are now forever either? I think that's a lot, how a lot of people think of life after death. It's just like this, but oh, you know what? I don't want to lose this. Can it just go on for a lot longer? I don't know about you, but I think that would be an absolute nightmare, to be honest. I mean, imagine you at your peak. I don't know if you thought you've reached your peak yet. You might be today, might be the day, you know. Imagine you at your peak, past, present, or future, and imagine, okay, the deal is this. That can just be extended forever, okay? When you die, you just get to go to back to that moment and there. Is that a good deal? Well, I don't know where I think my peak is, but I think if I, if I was taken to my peak, which is obviously well into the future, um, <laughs> of course it is, um, and it was said, right, forever, I think, give that a thousand years, let's say, let's put it in a term I can, I can think of, I would be getting pretty fed up with myself <laughs> after a thousand years. I think it would have been a lot sooner. Not to mention how fed up everyone else would be getting up with me after a thousand years. If it was just me at my best. Actually, at our best, elongation of life would be very boring. And at worst, it would be complete torture, would be my guess. Now, I don't think we need an elongated life. In Jesus, we get something different. Because Jesus' resurrection promises not just our lives will continue, we will be made new. That's amazing. Okay? So Jesus' resurrection brings us the promise that we can be made new in the future. Okay? Second thing is this. And here's where it gets cosmic, people. Yes, we can use that word. It's out of there. It's the universe. Jesus' resurrection means the universe, the whole universe, can be made uh, new in the future. This is great for a whole number of reasons, but surely this hits on one of the, the key concerns of our, our generation, and rightly are one of our key concerns. Uh, one of the key concerns of our world today is that our world is dying, okay? It's dying before our eyes, and also wrapped up in that is the small matter that we are probably killing it as well. That's pretty important in the whole, whole mix of things, and we need to change our ways with regard to that whole thing. However, Whoever's responsible for the problems that we get environmentally around us, more than at any time in history, certainly more than any time in my life, human beings are, are coming to terms with the fact that we cannot take for granted our planet and the home that it offers us. And so people are imagining all sorts of different futures that we could have that might be able to guess round the problems of the, the Earth's finitude, if I can uh, use that word. Now, again, some of those uh, solutions, wacky as they may seem, are for us p potentially to stop killing it, you know, as you do. Like that. I think that's a reasonably sensible suggestion of a future. Uh, might come back to that in a minute. Okay, that's, that's one thing people suggest. But for others, 
maybe, and there are many people around who are saying this now, they're saying, look, the damage is irreversible here. We, we, we can't go back on this now. It's kind of, we're done uh, as regards what we've done to our planet. And some would be on there, and others would be a little bit more kind of thinking big picture and saying, well, whatever we do with that, there are always solar flares and meteor strikes and potential alien invasions and stuff. So we're not going to be around here forever. So we need to think of something a little bit more extreme for all, all of this sort of stuff. And so you've got uh, ideas of uh, space stations that we can move to. And it all seem Wally. Yeah, yeah, you know that idea. They all move to the space station and get really fat, don't they? Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the idea. There's robots on Earth and that sort of thing. Now, that was science fiction stuff years ago, but people are working that through, the International Space Station and stuff like that. And even more than that, uh, it seems a bit more uh, ambitious, but creating sort of livable environments on other planets and that sort of stuff. Really people thinking through carefully uh, how we do that. And a lot of that research and planning is really important and really good. But although it is really good, Surely the same problem holds for all of these ideas as we've just considered for our individual lives. Because the concern for most people is, how can we elongate and extend human existence indefinitely? Like you've got those kind of, uh, what are they called, transhumans who are trying to do it as well. You know those guys? They're just trying to, like, Walt Disney freeze. Walt Disney's frozen, apparently. Did you know this? He's frozen somewhere. So they say. They're going to bring him back as Mickey Mouse one day. Okay, that would be cool. But anyway, um, but no, but people want to elongate. They want to just say, look, how can we extend human existence as long as possible? But there is very little concern or even discussion about whether that is actually a good idea. I mean, let's consider this for a moment. Um, let us consider we colonize Mars effectively at some point, okay? And imagine uh, your great-grandchildren, great-great, I don't know how many greats they'd be, uh, go to live on Mars. And brilliant, we've done it. We've changed the environment and all that sort of stuff. Everything's going well. Aren't we just going to mess Mars up as well? <laughs> Surely we're just going to mess it up. There's not a lot to mess up at the moment. It's all red and sandy as far as I can tell. But um, our track record as human beings is not great. And there's no real indication that we're learning any lessons here. Um, and of course, obviously, Mars will show vulnerability to solar flares and meteors and alien invasions and, and such like. So it won't be long before we just have to go somewhere else, you know. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think you have to be a massive pessimist to think the human race's chances of long-term survival on our own are pretty slim, and in our present state even, long-term survival could cause more problems than it solves. That sounds bad, doesn't it? But, I mean, it doesn't seem too far-fetched and pessimistic to say sort of things like that. We don't just need the world around us to continue for a bit longer. What we need is everything to be made new. That's the only solution. That's where the hope is, is found. And that's what Jesus' resurrection points to. In the passage in uh, Revelation 21, that, that vision starts with, with this phrase. It says, John, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The Bible is clear that when Jesus comes again, he's not just going to make us new. That's, that's pretty necessary, considering our our old selves and how, how uh, useless we, we are as our old selves at living meaningful and productive lives for eternity. That's good. But actually, even more than that, he's going to renew our entire habitation, our planet, in a sense, even the universe. There is, as I've said, a genuinely cosmic sense to look, I am making all things new. I just, do, I just want to underline something before I move on from here because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Um, this does not mean that we should not look after our planet, okay? 
just, just to be clear on this, some people have used that logic, okay, to say, whoa, Jesus is coming again, he's making all things new, let's trash the place. Okay, if you want to use that logic, and I, I'm saying that kind of flippantly, but I don't mean it flippantly with what I'm about to say, that would be the same as saying God's going to make our bodies new again, so self-harm and suicide are great. And we are not saying that. Of course not. These are things God's given us as gifts, and we look after them. Yes, he's going to make it new. That's where our hope lies. But you know what? Uh, we still are to, to cherish these gifts and do our best uh, to look after them, both our bodies and the planet around us. But with that said, surely this gives us hope for the world around us, because even though our best efforts are not going to be enough, there is still hope. We're not to be complacent about the state of our planet, but guys, we're not to despair either. And that's, a, that's an important thing we've got to hold on to in these times. So, Jesus' resurrection has big and massive and cosmic, mind-blowing consequences. But the third and final thing I want to say is it even has small and personal and even more potentially mind-blowing consequences. Because Jesus' resurrection means that God can make things new even in our lives today. Even in our lives today. This is a, let's look at this uh, very, very again, small verse. Paul says this. In the light of the resurrection, Paul writes this about God. And he calls God this. He says, in Romans 4.17, he describes God as the God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. The God who brings the dead back to and brings out of nothing, okay? He brings the dead back to life and new things out of nothing. In other words, what Paul's saying is that God, what we discovered the resurrection is that God is in the habit of doing what he did in the resurrection of his son pretty much everywhere that he goes. This is what God does. God is a God who loves making things new. And while the resurrection of Jesus is the most important example of him doing that in history, definitely, and for all eternity, we will praise it as the most important example. We should actually, as we worship the God of Easter Sunday, we should expect this characteristic of God to, to show itself regularly in our lives, even this side of death. And again, this means that our expectations and hopes as Christians should go much further than those who are around us. I mean, for many people, particularly I talked about age a lot, but this will be universal, but maybe it's associated with coming to a certain age, is the best that people can hope for is just for, again, like I said, things just to extend and hopefully not get significantly worse. I don't know if there's anyone in this room who, as you look at life, that's where you're at. You're thinking, yeah, well, it's gone. I hope we've got a few more years, but I just hope it just doesn't really tank. I hope it really just doesn't completely crash and burn. That's where I'm putting things. So, for example, in, in people's marriage, you might be saying, well, in my marriage, you know, we've been married for a bit. We've both made mistakes. We've both hurt each other. The spark's gone, obviously. Well, that's a, that's a given. Um, and my sh hope is that we can just limp along and not drive each other completely crazy or have to go through a messy divorce. That's why I put my hope. I just hope it just goes on and just doesn't get too bad. In your job situation, perhaps it's a bit like you feel you're stuck in a rut and actually... The rut is what your job is now, and that's what it's always going to be. You just turn up, do what you need to do, and your hope would be you can just learn to live with it, get by, and not get sacked or physically assault your boss. Maybe that's, maybe that's your heart. Uh, that's my, my deep heart. <laughs> Jonathan, good, good to see you. Be a good, I reckon it'd be a good fight, though. I reckon, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm getting distracted. Uh, I'm gonna, um, 
Maybe it's in your friendships uh, and family relationships. Maybe you've got to a point where things have just plateaued. Things that used to be really good. Oh, we've gotten so well. Our siblings got us so well. Our friends have gotten so well. But it's kind of evened out. And you think, well, maybe we're just going to drift. But I just hope we just don't fall out very badly. I guess, again, talking across the age gaps here, wherever you put yourself here, if you're a bit younger, you might, may think that sounds like an incredibly bleak view of life. <laughs> but actually, I, I guess that's where most many people are. Just make do, just put up with. Hope upon hope, things don't get worse, but don't put hopes higher than that. This is, that's gone. And probably my guess would be, however young you are, whatever age you are here, there'll be areas of your life that you've kind of, at least have the temptation of going down there to. But for us as Christians, as we consider the resurrection, what do we see? We see a God who brought his son back to life, not just as some reluctant one-off that was significantly out of character for him. No, we see a God who loves to bring dead things back to life. And that goes for people. It also goes for marriages or friendships or joys or hopes or ambitions. He's the God who brings the dead back to life. And we see in the resurrection a God who loves to bring new things out of nothing. Whether those new things are resurrection bodies, or new heavens and new earths, or new dreams, or new opportunities, or new adventures. The Jesus who rose again is saying over all of us, look, I am making all things new. I'm still doing it. I'm waiting. I'm eager. What can I make new today? It's not guarantee for us. It's not like every situation is going to be brilliant. But you know what? We come to the God who brings the dead to life and calls things that are not as if they were, who creates new things out of nothing. It's amazing. That's good, isn't it? That good? Let's, let's tie it all together. We, we close with another, another image, which is then, this is very fitting with the day we have today. But uh, we talked about seeds and plants, and that's a simple image. But this, I think, sums everything up for us. I think if we talk about all of this stuff, what does it mean? What's the importance of the resurrection? Uh, I want to give you another image. And it's an image that's not from the Bible this time. It's an image that's explored in depth by a, a writer who I'm sure many of you would know, a guy called C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, in his most famous book, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he imagines a world where it is always winter, but never Christmas. Many of you would have read that, uh, that book. You'd know that book well. It's always winter, but never Christmas. And the world that uh, Lucy, Susan, Peter, and Tarquin or something, I don't know. Ed, Edmund, yeah, I don't know, Edmund. The world they come into through that wardrobe, that's the world they come to. It's always winter, but never Christmas. And it's a, you know what? It's a very simple setup, isn't it? Oh, that's a nice way to start a story. But it's incredibly profound. You think, think of winter. What is winter? Well, winter, Johnny, is when it's really cold. Yes, that is correct, but that is not what winter's about. Winter is, continuing in cheery mood, the season of death. Isn't it? Season of death. Everything dies in winter. Or pretty much everything dies in winter in the natural world. Leaves of the trees die. The flowers die. The world around us experiences a million deaths during winter. Now, let's imagine for a moment, because for us that, that sounds very dramatic, doesn't it, about winter. I mean, it's just winter. But it, it's not dramatic for us. Do we know the kind of cycle? Let's imagine that winter was the only season there was. If that was the case, we would be living in a world that would be purely marked by death. And in a sense, that's the world that many of us live in, I think. 
we are dying, those around us are dying, all of our hopes and dreams are running out, there's the future event of our own deaths, not to mention other people's deaths, and even our world's inevitable demise that we're hearing more and more about, those things, they cast an incredibly long shadow over everything that we do. And if that's what our lives are, if that's how our life is marked by, it means that, that while we live, it all just seems so cruel and so cold and so meaningless. And I think that C.S. Lewis's picture is a very apt picture for the way that life is for so many people. And it seeps into many of us sometimes, even speaking of us as those who are Christians as well. What does Jesus' resurrection do then? Jesus' resurrection does the thing that Aslan's resurrection does in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It brings spring yeah and behind spring it promises summer and the spring and summer as we know make sense of winter we might moan a bit about winter we might not really like winter a whole lot I don't particularly like winter a whole lot but I guess for any of us we would see the point of winter I think Anyway, we might prefer to live in Barbados or something, but um, we would see the point of winter. It's the clearing away of things in light and in time for spring and summer when death gives way to life, when all things are made new. Now, I'm going to finish by just fleshing this out. I'm going to read a quote to you from CSL. I'm not going to, Lewis, I'm not going to put it out there. I'm going to put it out there in a minute so you can examine it. But just listen to this, because I think this is, it, this is remarkably insightful from good old Charles Staples. And uh, I'm going to leave it with you, because this is... a. Uh, this is great stuff, and it sums together all that we've done, I think. Okay? On a day like today, when you look out and see Easter in spring, the two things together, what a, what a surprise. It's not snowing. Um, this is what I think stick is in your head. The miracles that have already happened are, of course, as Scripture so often says, the, the first fruits of that cosmic summer which is presently coming on. Christ has risen, and so we shall rise. To be sure, it, it feels wintry enough still, but often in the very early spring, it feels like that. 2,000 years are only a day or two by this scale. A man ought to say the resurrection happened 2,000 years ago in the same spirit in which he says, I saw a crocus yesterday, because we know what is coming behind the crocus. The spring comes slowly down this way. But the great thing is that the corner has been turned. What's the resurrection? The resurrection is the turning of the corner from winter to spring. And it's important for all sorts of reasons we don't have time to touch on today. If, if the resurrection validates Jesus, the resurrection sort of is the historical foundation of our faith. It says it's a pretty good idea to be a Christian because our founder did something no one else has managed to do. It's all of that stuff. But also... It's the moment when our world turned the corner from winter to spring. And it's this one event then, more than any other, that makes us confident and hopeful that one day, and it comes slowly to us, but summer is on the way. But he finishes like this. And this is where I'm, I want to leave with you. We're putting the ball back into our court. This is what C.S. Lewis says. There is, of course, this difference, that in the natural spring, the crocus cannot choose whether it will respond or not. We can. We have the power either of withstanding the spring and sinking back into the cosmic winter or of going on into those high midsummer pomps 
in which our leader, the Son of Man, Jesus, already dwells, into which he is calling us. Listen to this. It remains with us to fall not, to die in this winter, or to go on into that spring and that summer. I want to ask every one of you, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, what are you going to do this Easter? Are you going to leave the resurrection of Jesus as an interesting conversation piece or a piece of religious tradition or that thing we celebrate every year, but it's kind of in the, in the run of things. It's just a break. It's a bank holiday, isn't it? And according to C.S. Lewis, what you'll be doing then is, in a sense, sinking back into that cosmic winter. Basically, you pull your coat on tight and you try to get by through the cold. Will you do that? Or will you, like Thomas, fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God, and put your trust and hope in the risen Jesus and follow him into the newness of life that he brings?